For everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly fatty liver disease, Surf's Up, Season 4, Episode 9 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami, our special sample from our Rising Tide in Diabetes podcast series, starts now. This week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. As somebody who's leading an organization and telling everybody else that they should find out and be assessed for fatty liver disease if they have risk, that I should lead by example and do the same thing. So looking at my own family history, that there's type 2 diabetes in the family, high cholesterol, high BMI, some have obesity, sleep apnea, I mean, a lot of indicators. The guidelines that we wrote were trying to keep it at the simplest, most basic testing because primary care doctors have a big difficulties in this and again, we have discouraged ultrasounds because ultrasounds are very operator-dependent. They don't really quantify the amount of fat. I think the reasons why Ken has done a great job of putting up these guidelines and recommendations is so many people that are at risk and even have more risk than you for liver disease are not tested today. The big unmet need here is in my clinic, I do see patients with cirrhosis for the first time in their life. FIT4 is not only diagnostic, but it is somewhat prognostic of 10-year mortality. And what's fascinating about it is that virtually all the 10-year liver mortality came from a FIB4 score of 2.7 or higher. But in an intermediate range between 1.35 and 2.7, that range is significantly predictive of cardiovascular mortality. In fact, almost as predictive of cardiovascular mortality over 10 years as the high score rate. Jeff Lazarus, who is really involved in the public health aspects, he did an analysis and, and asked physicians, how do you use the cutoffs for NITs? Very simple cutoffs, FIB4, it's defined. Turns out it's not you Physicians report different, using different cutoffs, and I think that adds to the confusion part. How do we hope to have people ask to be assessed and then not have the test available? The test is available, Roger, but if they have to actually fill out on the form that a hepatologist requested it. In advocating for patients in Canada, one big step you can take to support patients and this entire process will be to start advocating for AST to be included in standard batteries in Canada. That's where the strength of these tests come in. They empower the patients that put them into the position to realize they're at risk for metabolic disease and that's where you can action upon yourself. You've been empowered as a patient to do something and make uh, potentially healthy choices to improve your metabolic risk. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Professor Jarn Schottenberg, endocrinology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Kenneth Cousy, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and Fatty Liver Alliance president and founder Michael Battelle in a special sampling of the podcast The Nash Tsunami in Diabetes, getting ahead of the rising tide, this week, on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. Hi, this is Roger Green, and welcome to Surfing the Nash Tsunami, Season 4, Episode 9. This week, we're going to do something a little different. As I mentioned from time to time, we have started a second podcast called The Nash Tsunami and Diabetes, Getting Ahead of the Rising Tide, which is targeted at frontline treaters of patients living with type 2 diabetes, obesity, or other metabolic diseases. Unlike Nash Tsunami, which is published through Buzzsprout and distributed widely through Apple, Spotify, Google, and an array of podcast distributors, Rising Tide is a subscription-only series. That means you need to provide identifying information to access its main episodes. The challenge is that Nash Tsunami 
listeners keep asking me, how do I get to hear Rising Tide to decide whether I would like to subscribe? Some ask because they're physician specialists looking for ways to educate treaters in their communities or institutions. Others listen or ask because they are frontline treaters themselves who stumbled upon Rising Tide and like the idea of it. And a third group consists of commercial executives in drug, device, or diagnostic companies or clinical trial or site management organizations who view Rising Tide as a possible place to advertise or to sponsor episodes. If you are in any of these groups, this episode is for you. Last October, we recorded and then did not release one Rising Tide pilot episode. In this episode, Fatty Liver Alliance founder and president Mike Battelle describes some of the challenges that he faced in having himself tested for NASH. The physician panel includes Dr. Kenneth Cousy, probably the leading endocrinologist in the U.S. studying fatty liver disease, who is the co-host for the Rising Tide series. And the guest for the episode is Jorn Schottenberg, who was a guest at that time, but who you know is our co-host on NASH Tsunami. So, to give you a flavor of how Rising Tide is similar to NASH Tsunami and how it is different and why you might like to subscribe, this episode is a 17-minute conversation incorporating a few sections from the unpublished Rising Tide episode with Mike Patel, Ken, and Yorn. We all hope you enjoy it. If after you're done you want to subscribe to Rising Tide, simply go to the surfingnash.com homepage and click the Rising Tide link on the top banner. You'll go to a page that offers two ways to subscribe to Rising Tide. And whether you choose the one episode or full experience option, you will become a subscriber. And if you want to learn more about sponsorship, just contact me directly at roger.green at surfingnash.com. And now for our abbreviated episode. I'll be back with a very abbreviated business section at the end, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm really excited about today's episode. I think what we're doing is, if you think about this series, right, in the first episode, we talked about research, about why frontline treaters of type 2 diabetes and obesity might want to pay more attention to issues around fatty liver disease. We talked about prevalence and we talked about cardiovascular disease and how many patients and clinics have those issues. In the second episode, we talked about the ACE guidelines in which you were the first author and how that presented a path for what frontline treaters might want to do. Last episode, we talked about the use of pioglitazone and GLP-1s and some other agents where you can make drug choices in treating a diabetic patient cognizant of the idea that they're likely to have fatty liver disease and maybe headed towards fibrosis. Today, what I think we're doing is really cool. Uh, Mike Patel, who's the founder of the Fatty Liver Alliance up in Toronto and a friend of all of ours, set out as part of his educational mission on Facebook to be tested for fatty liver disease and to walk the patients who were in his audience through all the different tests he took and what they showed. And what he got were some results that I think were a little confusing, a little confounding, certainly to him, and caused him some concern. And what he's agreed to do today is to come and join you and me and to walk through those results so we could talk about what there was to learn, what he learned, how to remedy confusion, and in the process, why the guidelines that you've put in place and that you're advocating for make sense. Number one, and then I'll do number two, and then your floor. We're fortunate to be joined by one of my very favorite hepatology colleagues, Jorn Schattenberg from Mainz, Germany, who is one of my co-hosts on Surfing the National Tsunami and a world-class guy and also involved in public health and clinical care pathway development through his work with Jeff Lazarus in Europe. So I, I think we're in for a really great episode today. Ken Cousy. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think that this is going to be something really where we bring everything we talked about to the real world, to a patient who's gone through the anxiety and uh, several tests that don't align themselves. And I have to say, Roger, that the effort that we did with a number of endocrinologists and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists guidelines that 
we presented in May, co-sponsored by the American Association for a Study of Liver Disease, Dr. Rinella, Dr. Yanusi, and others, it really highlights the importance of going from simple to more complex in the management. We've got different choices. You can spend a lot of money, go under a lot of unnecessary anxiety. This can be completely avoided if the patient knows what is the pathway, if their doctors know. So this is a message for primary care doctors, for endocrinologists, and for gastroenterologists and pathologists to be on the receiving end of these referrals. So we are excited. Uh, we are also excited the, that the American Association for Study of Liver Disease is going to update their guidances this year. The American Diabetes Association is going to come up with updated guidances in January. So the field is coming together to really screen the high-risk people for fatty liver and hopefully make cirrhosis something of the past. Well, or at least start to slow the rate of progression. Let, let, let's start with, let's slow it up, and then we can worry about putting it in the rearview mirror. We, we have to dream big, uh, Roger. But again, remember that if you see the fruits of your dreams in your lifetime, you've not dreamed big enough. I'm a, I'm a process guy, though. I figure <laughs> if the dog catches the car, that's a good start. You just said something I find really interesting, which we talked last episode with Scott Isaacs about the paradox of frontliners being wary of getting enmeshed in liver disease, and as a result, patients finding out they've got cirrhosis in an emergency department 20 years later and saying, oh my gosh, they told me, but they never told me what it meant. You just described the paradox in a whole different sense, which is you've got anxious patients and confused frontline treaters who can look at these test results and not figure out what to make out of them. And then they're dealing with anxious patients, which take up more time in their practice and leave their stomachs churning. And it's just it's just a bad dynamic, you know? Well, I think a lot of the inaction was, until recently, was ignorance. I mean, on the parts of doctors and patients. But now we're talking about it and it's out there. So it's inevitable that you have to do something with it. With this bomb coming to our uh, laps, we just need to be smart, accept that it's a reality, and do the best uh, way to take care of it. And it's rather simple. Since people who are overweight or obese and with type 2 diabetes bear the brunt of the disease, it's good for them to know that with lifestyle changes and medications that are available that have not been available until just 10, 20 years ago, we have medications today that combined with lifestyle can resolve the inflammation in the liver uh, in 50 or 60 percent of the patients. So again, when we talk about semaglutide and other GLP-1 receptor agonists, when we talk about pioglitazone, these are drugs that are available that your doctor knows how to prescribe and that can change not only your liver, but can change your chances of developing diabetes or treat your diabetes and prevent your chance of cardiovascular disease. So there's a lot of good things that can happen from this. And I'm really excited. It's a unique time. And I think patients and doctors should be very excited too. I think they are. As always, my friend, I can't say it any better or any more strongly than you just did. So why don't we have Jorn and Mike join us and we'll dive into today's episode. Okay. Let's go for it. Here we go. We have with us, uh, first of all, my colleague on Surfing the National Tsunami and good friend Jorn Schottenberg. Jorn, how are you today? Jorn Schottenberg. Hey, Roger. I'm, I'm fine. Thanks for uh, having me on the show tonight. Okay, thanks. And then second, our point of focus for today's episode and one of, I think, the really fantastic patient advocates in the space, uh, Mike Patel. Mike, how are you today? Mike Patel. Thanks, Roger. I'm great. Thanks for allowing me to be here. So 
Let's do this. This episode stemmed from a project of Mike's, who is, in fact, a fantastically creative patient advocate and makes use of social media in ways that I learned from him watching what he does. This is a story about Mike as patient. And what we want to walk you through today is a little bit of Mike's story as patient, what he set out to do, the path he took to get a diagnosis. And then I'm going to ask Jorn and Ken as doctors to comment on that. And then we as a group will try to pull that back to our earlier episodes and specifically our discussions about the value of guidelines and pathways. So, Mike, it's your audience. See, floor is yours. Tell your story. <laughs> okay, I'll give it a go here. As I said uh, in the opening, I learned a lot about fatty liver disease that I didn't know about. And I started to realize as somebody who's leading an organization and telling everybody else that they should find out and be assessed for fatty liver disease if they have risks, that I should lead by example and do the same thing. So looking at my own family history, we have, and I'm not just talking about myself and my family, and I'm going all the way back even to the grandparents level, that there's type 2 diabetes diabetes in the family, high cholesterol, high BMI, some have obesity, sleep apnea. I mean, a lot of indicators. And here I am telling everybody else that they should get assessed and I didn't do it myself. My journey started, I we have a board of directors and one of them is a family practice physician and has a specialty in liver. And so I asked her to assess me for fatty liver disease because my own primary care doctor never did. I had the regular panel of tests every year, like most people do annually, but AST was not one of the tests that I ever had done because it's not part of the normal panel in Canada. And you can get it, but you have to say that a specialist recommended that the patient gets that. And so that never happened for me. I mean, in fairness, I never specifically went to my doctor and said, hey, I want to be tested for fatty liver disease, which I would do now. But since I had the connections to do it, I went about it another way with another family practice physician. I started with the first one that became available to me. And I'll just, just briefly, I'll go through them and then I'll, I'll pass it back to you guys. But I had an opportunity for one non-invasive diagnostic test that made by fiber it's called liver fast and they offered it to me as a sample to try it because of my position leading fatty liver alliance and i said sure so i did that i got those results back and they came back normal for activity and fibrosis and steatosis a little bit of liver fat but it was still normal the physician did a fit four for me it came back indeterminate it was 1.71 and the physicians can comment on that then i went and had an ultrasound they did not find any liver with the ultrasound and then i had with one of the clinics that i know a fiber scan and that's for me was the absolute most confusing part of the whole thing because although it showed no fibrosis, it was 3.9. It's 319 on this on the CAP score indicated, I think, from what I understand, a 70 odd percent fat in my liver, which is really scary for a patient. And of course, I'm scratching my head going, how could one test show that I have stage three, I guess, in liver fat when all of the other tests I did so far before that said that I didn't have any liver fat. And and FiberScan is pretty recognized as a test. And by the way, since then, I have met with people from the company that does that, the Equisense, and they said that it's accurate. They looked at the 10 samples and everything looks right. And so I really don't understand why there's a disparity there. So going back further then, I wanted to also check more and my physician sent me for a CT scan, which also did not suggest fatty liver. And then this week, I had an MRI. And that just about does it in the non-invasive space. I had an MRI, which also showed... uh, uh, no liver fat. Did you have an MRE also? And what was the elastography on the fiber scan? The fiber scan, and it was just an MRI, like a regular MRI. You have the report, I don't know if you get a second yeah. peek at it while we're talking. KPA 3.9, CAP of 319 on the uh, fiber scan, Ken, and no MRE, I don't believe. So that's where I'm at, and I'm at a place where I can only imagine patients who don't have the ability to investigate further. The first worry is, you know, am I a risk and, and how do I get tested? And then how do I get tested? What am I going to get tested? 
what should I look for? So it's confusing. And actually confusing is the kind word because as Mike went through this, we would talk from time to time. And I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on the podcast. That's why I have guys like you around, Ken and Yorn. But he would ask me what I thought all this meant. And I was like, you know, this is really interesting because while we're doing this, we talk on this series and on Next Tsunami about pathways and guidelines and why things are set up the way they are. The first thing I'd like to ask you folks to do, Yorn, Ken, Ken, you kind of started. We sent you Mike's test results. And I'm wondering what questions you have for him about what he did and what, what as, as you point, ask Ken, what didn't get done and kind of what you make of all this as clinicians. And then we'll come back to what you make of it as guys who write guidelines and public health papers. So as a primary care, I hear that Yorn is a real expert, but what did the primary care doctor convey you about fatty liver, NASH, fiber? What was the message? Why, why was he ordering those tests? What, what did he explain the implications of the potential findings were? Okay, so this is not normal because she is a member of our board of directors and did it for me because I asked her if she would. So it is not something that came up in the blood test that indicated that I need further investigation. And we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about fatty liver because the assumption was that, you know, I understood the risk factors and, and the implications. And the other thing is that I'm wondering about, without getting into many details, did she ask you if you belong to one of the risk groups like having type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia? Yeah, in fact, we, we did a, a couple series of different blood tests, including a fasting glucose test as well, A1C, all of that. The, the other thing is, as you said, I mean, these tests are not perfect tests. So the guidelines that we wrote were trying to keep it at the simplest, most basic testing because primary care doctors have a big difficulties in this. And again, we have discouraged ultrasounds because ultrasounds are very operator dependent and they don't really quantify the amount of fat. And that's why we went from FIB4, which you had done and it was 1.71, to eventually fiber scan and looking at the fibrosis score, which was 3.9, right? So that's below eight or below seven, if you want to be more aggressive. And I would have probably just stopped there. I mean, say if the test is done in a reliable center that you don't have fibrosis, you may have fat and this might promote you to do exercise. But again, you you went further and the CT says there's no fat. But to be honest, the test is not the test that measures fat. It's just a morphological CT scan and the CT only detects fat relative to the spleen. So it's a relative so it's not also the best unless it, it had MRPDF. I think probably your primary care doctor should have worked with a hepatologist to sort all this out because there's several layers of the test. And because of the complexity, we don't want the primary care doctors ordering many tests. Jordan, how, how do you see it? How do you work in your institution in this situation? Thank you. And that, that was a perfect segue to loop in the hepatologist here. And Michael, thanks for sharing your story. And, you know, I, I send some confusions around the results of the test. This is one of the areas where testing can do harm. Obviously, you use resources if you do consecutive tests, and I think that's where guidelines and referral pathways really are needed to help and support. But then on the other hand, every clinical decision is very personal, and um, there's always good rational to do this or that test based on risk factors. Uh, Kenneth alluded to some of those. I think you have a family history of metabolic risk factors. If I understood it right, uh, also a slightly increased fasting glucose with an A1C in, in the six-ish something. Not 
diabetes, but not perfectly normal. So I, in, in guidelines, um, as Kenneth said, you would have been recommended to undergo screening because you have risk factors, albeit mild risk factors. But I'm with Kenneth, if you go through the lines and you see the transient elastography, which is a very practical and widely available test, you don't have advanced fibrosis. So for me as a hepatologist, that's almost the end of the story because I would tell you that I'll bite fatty liver and we can even say, well, the tests are divergent. So maybe there is, or maybe there's not fat. You don't have scarring in your liver and you turned the age you've turned without accumulating scar in the liver. And I would highlight that there is no increase in risk in terms of liver disease for you. On the other hand, if we take the results uh, of the cap and uh, highlight that you have fatty liver disease, then the hepatologist is also not the best person to talk to because it doesn't link to liver outcomes, but it does predict, you know, your chance of developing diabetes and complications of diabetes. A physician like Kenneth or your educated primary care physician, that's exactly the right type of physicians you have to talk to. That's where the strength of these tests come in. They empower the patients. They put them into the position to realize they're at risk for metabolic disease. And that's where you can action upon yourself. You have been empowered as a patient to do something and make uh, potentially healthy choices to improve your metabolic risk. Bjorn, I think both comments are really interesting and telling. One of the things we've talked about on this podcast, for example, on this podcast and earlier episodes, is the idea that, in fact, we talked about this last time with Scott Isaacs, that primary care doesn't want to step into this testing because it's a morass and they're not sure how to treat the patient at the end of it. And I think what Mike has done very nicely is describe the morass. If you don't have a pathway, if you don't have a guideline, if you don't know what to do next, if you don't know what the tests do, then you can make perfectly well-reasoned discussions from where you sit that take you off course or take you kind of chasing an awful lot of expensive equipment in pursuit of diagnosis. So in that regard, we've talked about the need for pathways and for exactly that reason. The, the half being people want to get to the right answer quickly and yourn is you exactly as you say, the trick is to empower patients to be able to go to the right place and do the right thing. It's not like I'm not paying attention to risk factors, but yet still even doing all that stuff and I'm taking anti-cholesterol drugs, two of them. So it's not like I'm not addressing these issues, but now that I see the test and I go, well, geez, my liver still has a lot of fat in it. So now what am I supposed to do? I'm actually tomorrow, coincidentally, I rejoined the gym and I'm going to start actually doing some exercise like workouts with weights too, because I haven't done any of that. And I'm going to see if that makes a difference. Yeah. To be honest, you touched on, uh, among another very important point because people now, when they've told that they have too much fat in there, begin feeling guilty and bad about it. We forget that there are genes. There's people who are lean like a toothpick and have NASH and cirrhosis. So half probably is a genetic component if you want to put it in, uh, I don't know, broad terms and half are your habits. Some people get the right genes and gain a lot of weight and do poor lifestyle changes. They'll get probably a fatty liver. Others do all the right choices and will have fatty liver. So remember this interaction. Did one or both of your parents have type 2 diabetes? Well, my mother passed away when I was like five and a half, so I don't know. My father has type 2 diabetes. If you have one parent with type 2 diabetes, your chances of having type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance are like 30, 40%. If you have both, it's like 70 to 80%. So for your peace of mind, what you may want to do is clarify with the right test that your hepatologist would indicate to put all this to rest. But the key thing is that there shouldn't be shame, guilt, or whatever if you discover in a screen that you have fatty liver because there is an interaction of genes independent of your of anything else that you can do. And now for the season four episode nine business report. Slava Ukraini, Slava, glory to Ukraine. 
As befits the shorter episode, this is an abbreviated business report. However, given how we discuss the war in Ukraine every week, I thought even on this abbreviated week, I want to recognize the courage and statesmanship it took for President Biden to travel to Kiev this week and to note that Friday will mark the second year of this insane, unjust invasion. Because this week is an abbreviated episode, we will play music from Mississippi Mick Colossa next week, along with information on how to donate to Mick's fundraiser for Chef Jose Andres and his World Kitchen. Again, I say, Slava Ukraini. Did you like this episode? Here's how to subscribe to Rising Tide. If you like what you heard, come subscribe to Nash Tsunami and Diabetes, Getting Ahead of the Rising Tide. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, to do so, simply go to the surfingnash.com homepage, click the Rising Tide link on the top banner. You go to a page that offers two ways to subscribe to Rising Tide, and whether you choose the one episode or full experience option, you will become a subscriber. And if you want to learn more about sponsorship, just contact me directly at rogergreen at surfingnash.com. This week will be a test of download durability. As I record this 21 days into February, we are over 8,000 downloads and already the sixth largest month ever, despite being in February and having another week to go. We've never averaged more than 310 downloads a day for an entire month, and that was the only time we were over 300. Through last night, this month it averaged 400. If this week gets a reasonable number of downloads, we will break the one-month record, despite being the shortest month of the year and using this sampler as an episode. This weekend, The Vault will be a surprise. Keep this as short and focused as possible. There will be no vault description today. You'll just have to check over the weekend to see what we've got for you. And with that, I'm off. Thanks to Jake, Magic Mike, and Eric for helping to get this episode out the door. And to Ken, Yorn, and the fantastic Mike Patel for recording the episode from which this conversation came. Next week, we will be discussing pediatric and adolescent fatty liver disease with Yorn, Louise, Naeem Al-Khoury, and two first-time guests, Drs. Rohit Kohli and Miriam Voss. Until then, make sure to let us know how you feel about Rising Tide. Stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast next week. Bye-bye now. Have any questions for the surfers or a topic you would like us to cover in a future episode? Please write to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll answer your questions either on the podcast or the website, and we'll schedule a call or video conference to discuss your episode idea.